Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 7th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So the controversy involving Joe Rogan's whatever the controversy of Joe Rogan is, which was something about how he was peddling uh, misinformation about COVID by not asking tough enough questions of his guests who were on for three hours is now transmuted into Joe Rogan using the N-word and Joe Rogan apologizing for using the N-word, having previously apologized for not having been more uh, thoughtful about uh, controversial topics on his show so he's made two apologies abe you have uh, you have some thoughts on i i would say this uh friday i was listening uh, to uh, the podcast we recorded on friday just uh, earlier today and um and noah said you know this is over like the joe rogan thing is over clearly it's not over spotify has now put out a statement you know, talking about the pain and suffering that, that has been, you know, caused by Joe Rogan and the need for a safe space or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so Abe. Well, yeah, I mean, because this is this was always larger than than the issue that Neil Young brought up, which was the, the vaccine and misinformation. Um, Rogan has long been a target of the liberal establishment because, A, he as we've covered, uh, doesn't toe the line, and B, he's um, a commercial threat to um, so so many of the broadcasters. Um, but what happened was uh, the attempt to to cancel him, to take him down um, because of the the his his stance or and the stance of those he spoke with on vaccines. That that sort of rolled to a near stop that was pretty much dead so then they have then had to drag out haul out the racism accusation using old clips out of context and sure enough as it will do in this day and age in this country it 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 sort of started up a whole new um bigger conflagration i think it was certainly more far-reaching in terms of um, uh, getting different demographic groups in. This is now no longer about uh, old hippie codgers. You know, there's there's a there's a few sort of younger celebrities um, who who've gotten on board. What the, what what happened basically? Was, so they took a, a a compilation clip of Rogan using the N word um, without any context, and that sort of went viral. I, I saw it on TikTok, on uh, uh, Twitter. I assume it's elsewhere. So then Rogan issues the apology, um, a long apology about how um, the clips are old and they look really bad. They look even bad to him. Um, uh, they were taken out of context, but in any case, the word is not his to use. And he's very sorry. And he also apologized for a um, some sort of uh, comedy bit that he did. So the the interesting thing uh, here to me is that I think the apology is silly and unnecessary because um, I don't think the prohibition on the word or any word in context should ever have been in place to begin with. I think 
if you if you rule out uh, the use of any word discussed as a word, um, you are sort of abandoning reason altogether there. So I don't think there's any there was anything to apologize for. I also don't believe that comics should apologize for jokes, uh, offensive jokes. I don't want them apologizing for Jewish jokes either. I don't. I just don't. I think it's sort of bad cultural habit to get into. But where I think everyone has gotten the story wrong, or a lot of people have gotten the story wrong, because a lot of the right, the anti-woke right, is angry at Rogan for apologizing here, um, and they're saying, well, this this goes to show that. No corporation will stand by you. I think they got the story wrong in that um, Rogan believes it. I think this is a very sincere apology on his part because he stopped using the word on his own years ago before Spotify was ever in his life. That's a decision he made. Um, so you have to deal with what happened in those terms. You think you know, people saying, how, how doesn't Joe Rogan know that once you apologize to the mob, they're going to come after you? Yes, he knows. Of course he knows. He's discussed it a billion times. He's not apologizing to the mob. He is apologizing to people he believes he who are, have, have been sincerely offended by things he's done wrong. Now, I, I think it's a wrong decision, but that's not really even important. What I that what I think about what he believes, um, and I think that's that's what's going on here. And there's a sort of mismatch in the criticism um, of of the whole phenomenon. Hey, you know more about this than I do. The context that you're describing here, outside of comedy bits, presumably <clears throat> on his podcast, I think was the exploration, the etymology of offensive terms, right? So the context and there talking is about a other broader discussion about offensive it. words, right? Right. Yeah. And he would talk about other people using it. This person used to say it. That person used to say it. Is there another word like it? The word is carries all these different meanings. Yes. Well, well and okay, go ahead. I was just going to add that say I agree with Abe, and it's really important, especially on our side, to point out that there is no shame in apologizing if you've done something offensive. And people on the right do offensive things all the time, and they should apologize for them when they feel an apology is necessary. They shouldn't be bullied into apologizing to a braying mob of Twitter people. But there are many times where we we misjudge a, a tone or their use of language, and we should say, you know what, that was a mistake. I, I went a little over, a little above uh, and beyond there, and I, I apologize for that. I I agree with that. I will say too that on this, on the N word in particular, it is just there's so many layers of irony to this so-called controversy. Because do you know how many songs you can listen to on Spotify that use the N word? <laughs> and do you know how many people who are listening and singing along and repeating who are not African American? So like there's there's that whole cultural issue. But there's also the fact that the left has actively tried to ban you know the any books by Mark Twain that mention it, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean there there have been efforts at censoring a word rather than putting it in context that reminds me actually of the summer of pulling down statues every which way. It's like, let's not even try to have a discussion or debate about the historical meaning of this object or this word. Let's just eliminate it and cancel anyone who attempts to use it. The mismatch. Or discuss it, discuss it. <laughs> right. So the mismatch here is a mismatch between good faith and bad faith. The attack on Rogan, the secondary attack on Rogan is an attack in bad faith. It is an effort by people who are who sent blood in the water who want to destroy him because they don't like his politics that's this group the Midas touch there are there are a bunch of brothers who like the Krasenstein brothers or others have some kind of a basically a hustle a kind of liberal hustle they're affiliated with some uh some pack I don't really understand the whole 
logic of it, but you know, these there there's this whole world of people who are who are paid now or pay themselves or make money by uh, going around and doing this kind of spade work where they where they you know unearth things from 15 years ago that destroy people's lives. And we know, by the way, that this happens without reference to ideology necessarily. I mean, there was the case of Alexei McCammond. Uh, who was uh, hired to be the editor of Teen Vogue and annoyed a couple of people who were jealous of the fact that she was 27 and got Teen Vogue. So they dug up tweets or something that she put up when she was 17 and a freshman at the University of Chicago and just, and and made Condé Nast fire her before she ever got the job. That is one of the things that is going on here that is so unbelievably ugly is that is that um, you have the most naked forms of uh, of human weakness, uh, envy, guy, you know, spite, um, guile, uh, uh, you know, nastiness, mob hunger, the, you know, sadism and all of that sort of combining. And so, you know, you, you layer onto that a certain, you know, ideological free song because Rogan, of course, is ideologically uncharacterizable. I mean, he's sort of part of this intellectual dark web on the one hand, and on the other hand, he's kind of a, you know, he's a libertarian, weirdo, you know, jacked up, probably steroided guy. You know, I mean, none of it, none of it follows precisely a, a in slightly, any sense. A slightly more relevant example might be the Sarah Silverman example. Are you familiar with that? Which one? Sarah Silverman I mean, um, lost an acting gig. Uh, when somebody did this to her, they dug up an episode of the Sarah Silverman show in which she was doing a sketch, a skit, whatever you call it, um, where she was in blackface to explore whether it's harder to be black or Jewish in America. That was the sketch. Mm-hmm. Aired in 2007. It cost her a part in 2019. Right. And the, the so- rules of engagement there have changed dramatically because this is a this is a program that aired without making a ripple in her industry on Comedy Central. And the you know, our, our ethos has changed a decade later. So there's a retroaction to police morality that was not, uh, not a standard that was not in place when she did this. It is not our ethos. This is the other thing we need to we need to understand. This is not our ethos. This is not a commonly accepted American norm that Joe Rogan violated. This is an effort to lever uh, um, sort of citizen power, mob objection, and scare the bejesus out of corporations and publicly traded companies. That is what this is about. It is about, it's not about how there is a <clears throat> an American consensus on how Joe Rogan shouldn't use the N-word. It's can you scare Spotify into firing him by making it appear as though it would be cheaper for them to let him keep his $100 million that they paid him uh, because the stock price decline is going to be greater than the amount of money they would have to pay him off. And then you can claim to have a scalp. And then, of course, that's what happens is that other corporations see this and they get scared. Sarah Silverman lost a part because whoever it was who had the part thought this is not worth it to me in terms to have to deal with any controversy i'm not interested she's got a she's got a tertiary part in a movie i don't need any controversy over her i'll just find somebody else for that job alexi mccammon same thing like 
I don't need to have any controversy over the editorship of Teen Vogue. I'll just find another moron 27-year-old to publish crap about nothing for idiot teenagers who can't read and don't understand the first thing about anything. There's a million of them. There's a million of them. Alexi McCammon looked like a good one, you know, a person of color. But you know what? If it's not her, you know, we'll find some other person of color who's a moron. I mean, it's it's all the same. So what we have here is not a change in national ethos. We have a change in strategy using the levers of social media that did not exist when Sarah Silverman made her skit the first time in 2007 or when in 2007 people were using social media they were putting up cat they were putting up pictures of their cats and having kind of like oh it's so great to see you again after 30 years on facebook finding your friend from high school like that was social media was very benign when it started and then it took this turn into savagery and you know look guy like joe rogan is partially a creation of social media i mean if you consider sort of like YouTube or some of these other things are kind of extension of social media. So live by it, die by it. I don't really think he's going to die by it, but I do. I do wonder whether Abe, you say his apology is heartfelt. And I sort of believe that. And of course, uh, what that, what that suggests is a misunderstanding of the Joe Rogan stands of who Joe Rogan is, which is to say, they think he's a controversialist. He doesn't think of himself as a controversialist. He thinks of himself as just a guy who asks questions of controversialists. And unfortunately, you know, that may prove to be an untenable distinction. And, you know, he has the distinction in his own head. Nobody else believes in any distinctions like that anymore. And because, you know, we've been saying how he's ideologically sort of all over the place and, and, and how that, <clears throat> how the sort of left and liberals are, are uncomfortable with that. But I, we're also seeing now, because in the right's reaction to his apology, the right's uncomfortable with it. His apology sort of screws them up because they had been thinking, well, he's just one of us down the line, you know, um, but he's not a right wing guy either. You know, he's he's this he's this mishmash. Well, this uh, one, there's a, just one aspect of the people story. People hate the intellectual dark web people more than they hate the right. A lot of these people. A- absolutely. Right. But okay. there, there, there's just one aspect of the story I neglected to mention, which is that uh, Spotify uh, removed a hundred or so episodes of, of Rogan's show. Um, presumably ones that they found offensive. I don't know if Rogan has uh, commented on that yet uh, or if he will, but it's something to keep an eye on. And And I don't know if that's, a way for them to sort of um, say, okay, this is how we're handling it and we're going to move on. Or if it's the, if it is a precursor to, to some larger move on their part. I mean, again, in some ways, this is none of our business. I mean, I know this sounds like a weird thing to say that it's none of our business because it is all part of this, you know, question of the cultural revolution, you know, devouring uh, people, but um, Joe Rogan didn't have to take the money from Spotify. He put himself under a corporate umbrella from a publicly traded company. Um, and he may have thought that he could just go on being and doing and saying whatever he wanted to. And that's what they said they wanted from him because it's so fantastic to get, you know, uh, to, to you get the money and you get to be this, you know, outlier counterculture figure. Um, and guess what? No, it doesn't work like that. You know, you take the man's money, you're going to be under the man's aegis. That's that's just the you know, you you your freedom comes from your freedom. 
not from your selling out. Like he sold out to Spotify and now he's going to have to, you know, he's going to have to deal with the consequences, including, by the way, uh, having a lot of the people who love him get mad at him for kowtowing or what they will. I, I agree with you. He's not kowtowing. I believe that both of these apologies were heartfelt, but that is not how, you know, the Kirchleisters of the world are going to read Joe Rogan's behavior and they're going to think that he kowtowed and they're not going to be interested in him anymore. So uh, that's one aspect of this. Keep your powder dry. You want, you want freedom. You got to be free. You know, you don't get to work. You don't get to take the big corporate paycheck and then complain that you're being suppressed. I mean, you can, but suppression is built into the, the very nature of the contract. How is Spotify able to shut Joe Rogan's programs down? Doesn't he own them? Well, he did. He used to, but I guess he doesn't anymore. So, you know, let that be a lesson uh, as people are foraging into the future with Substack and all of that stuff that, um, you know, you, you are, if you think you're doing this in order to take the step into the mainstream, you better be very careful about taking the step into the mainstream because Spotify isn't making money. Spotify has two money plays. One is subscribers which is what they which is what they want from rogan is to help get subscribers and the other is stock price and generally speaking stock price is going to be more important to them than subscriber numbers at any given point and so they're going to sue for peace because every single person at the top of spotify has two million five million shares of block stock in type c that they don't want to see themselves suddenly half as rich as they were three days or four days earlier because Joe Rogan used the N-word one because some Schmendrick found out that Joe Rogan used the N-word once. It, it's, it's just a very interesting moment um, if you think about it. The ironies are manifold um, that you, 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 you have a circumstance in which, in which a guy basically starts a podcast in his basement. He builds this massive following uh, out of nowhere, he makes a lot of money on his own, and then he decides that he wants to take the big paycheck. And it, it's only a year before he comes crashing into some kind of a wall. So for our friend Barry, for everybody on Substack, for everybody, for Ben Shapiro, for everybody who is in this position, keep your distance. Well, it, it's funny because he's the one person I can think of, at least at the moment, who sort of went in the opposite direction of all of them. A lot of other people were in these established institutions said, I don't need this. I'm going to go off and do right. my own thing and, right. and, and break out. Right. He built his own thing in not obscurity, right. but out of something smaller, yeah. then made this huge controversial juggernaut and then decided to try to insert it into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a little I, the only the only the analogy that pops into my head, which is really stupid, but you know, popped into my head, and why not? Because everybody loves a good pop culture analogy. Is you know, George Bailey sitting in the room with Mr. Potter, right? Mr. Potter saying, "I'm gonna pay you twenty thousand dollars a year. Don't you want to take your wife to Paris, get some new clothes, and da da da?" You know, and there's George Bailey sitting there going, "Is this, you know." You're talking to me, this is my trick here. It's like, yes, George Bailey, because your ship has come in. And everybody who is tempted by this corporate deal making 
to go into the mainstream has got to be George Bailey right after that and go, you think you can buy people and take the cigar out of his mouth and realize that what's actually being done, even though that's not the intention of Spotify or the intention of the mainstream is to silence, not to, not to buy the audience, but ultimately to have the power to silence. That is, that is the, that is what you get when you when you when you buy somebody's intellectual property and and take them. You can do whatever you want with it. You buy their, you know, it's like the classic thing about about um, selling a book to the movies. Like you sell a book to the movies. If you don't have a good lawyer watching for it, suddenly your character that you created is is going to end up, you know, your you know your existential character living you know at the end of a of a chasm is going to end up in a buddy movie with a cop in San Francisco like you have you have no say over what you own if if that's the way you want to go and that's the way you want to be a success that's fine but you can't then not that Joe Rogan is complaining about it but i just think people need to be need to think about that in this way and and understand one of the great aspects of this and again i think of Ben Shapiro in this regard is we are at a moment at which people may be building the new journalistic cultural institutions that are going to be present in our lives or in American lives for the next 75 years. You know, in the 1920s, what, what was founded? Forbes was founded. Time was founded. Life, you know, Time, Time magazine was founded by two 25-year-old guys. Forbes founded Forbes. Um, you know, uh, David Sarnoff and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the other guy, William Paley and David Sarnoff started CBS and NBC. These were all young men. Some of them didn't have much money. One of them made cigars, you know, for a living. One was a radio operator and they created these new institutions that destroyed that, you know, that 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 supplanted and were the great noise of the 20th century. We're seeing that happen now. And if they get compromised or bought up or, or, or swallowed by, by current behemoths that aren't going to be around in 20 years, they're not going to establish themselves. I think it's just that simple. Um, I think, I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, I, I could be, I could be overinterpreting the meaning of uh, the meaning of um, uh, what, what's, you know, of, of, of Joe Rogan for that matter, you know, um, what I'm not going to overinterpret is the importance of the conversation on Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast that you can listen to right now. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher to subscribe if you're not already subscribed. It was previously the post-corona podcast, so if you've subscribed to Hearing Me Before, it's probably there in your feed. And if you haven't, go subscribe now because he has a dynamite conversation. Very interesting, particularly at this moment with everything that's going on in China with the Olympics and the horrible behavior of the Chinese in China at the Olympics. He's got a conversation with Eric Schwartzel of the Wall Street Journal about Eric Schwartzel's new book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, which has some connections to the conversation we're having now because it's all about how American cultural uh, producers um, are finding uh, that the seductions of the Chinese market and the size of the Chinese market are such that they will do just about anything, including censor and destroy uh, works of popular art um, in order to kowtow to the Chinese to get access to that market. And the stories are manifold and horrifying. And, you know, NBC, it, by the way, is doing it right now with the Olympics. So this is not, you know, this is not precisely a subject of this book. I mean, we have these 
weird things that NBC anchors and stuff like that are saying as they broadcast the Olympics to kind of soft pedal, uh, you know, the um, the 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 controversies around uh, Chinese people like grabbing a Dutch reporter and, and hauling him away in the middle of a, of a of a live broadcast and and all and 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 apparently the absolutely monstrous behavior that the Chinese are showing toward the athletes in terms of isolating them and how they are doing coronavirus tests which apparently is quite injurious they're like sticking those they're sticking those sticks pr- pr- practically up into their brains and kind of like making it really hard for these guys to then go out and concentrate they, they get terrible headaches and they have to go out and you know perform on the, perform on the ice or on the snow or stuff like that anyway there's a lot of this going on where the chinese are getting to do whatever they want to do because of our craven you know, uh, this craven corporate seduction uh, that is represented by the Chinese market that is increasingly dominated by an increasingly totalitarian regime. So that is the Call Me Back podcast with Dan Senor, with Eric Schwartzel of the Wall Street Journal. Go listen to it, profit from it, be horrified by it, and uh, and, and learn from it. Uh, so, uh, do we want to talk about the uh, the the sort of the weird COVID good news, or do we want to talk about the horrible Republican National Committee news? Who somebody pick? I think the horrible National Committee news. It's on brand for us because it's horrible news, and I don't think we can allow it to pass without condemning it. Uh, so let's okay, be condemning so, it. <laughs> so let's condemn it. So let's condemn it. Yeah. So okay. Late last week, RNC meeting in Utah. Um, Resolution was passed by voice vote, um, uh, approving the censure of both representatives, um, Adam Kinsinger of Illinois and um, Liz Cheney of Wyoming, for their participation in the January 6th committee um, because it's harassing private citizens. And then the subsequent resolution condemned the committee and its actions, um, saying to the to the effect, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing here that uh, January, the events of January 6, to a certain degree, constituted legitimate political discourse, and that dropped like a lead balloon. And there was another statement put out by uh, Rona Romney McDaniel, the head of the RNC, saying, you know, accept all the violence. So to caveat that, you know, accept the violence, but the rest of it was all legitimate political discourse. Um, this is, first of all, that's not going to do it. That ultimately underscores the uh, weird myopic failure to acknowledge the violence of that day in that original statement. It's sort of cementing in the impression in anybody's mind who's a a neutral observer that um, they messed up and they know they messed up and uh, it's not going away. Ultimately, this is a moral failure. They here, you mean, is the RNC. You mean the vote in the RNC on the the first language. Yes. Right. And and second of all, it's, it's politically stupid, incredibly stupid. Not only are you talking about repelling uh, the vast majority of voters for whom this event was a, a horrible event, a formative event, um, and that's a legitimate, real sentiment in the in the voting population, but who among the Republican voting base are you even talking to? I'm not familiar with polls that say even a majority of Republicans approve of the events of January 6th. Most Republicans are just like the rest of the country, repulsed by what happened, want it to never happen again, and aren't interested in window dressing it in order to retroactively justify the actions of Donald Trump and his coterie who who, who, form, who fomented this violent event. 
to the I don't know what they're thinking at the RNC, but they're pandering to a particular base that they think is is the you know the foundation of their party. I think they've misread the room and the extent to which this makes up the base of the party. They're talking to a very activist class, okay. a recalcitrant activist class, and it's going to come at the expense of their own political influence. They are the class. This is the mistake you're making, Noah. This re- resolution is for them and by them, and it's what they believe. I don't, I don't not, disagree with that. I'm saying okay, that's a very that, small population. No, the name but, of the game okay, is to get to 50 plus one. Let me, let, me, let me explain to you the structure, unless it's wildly changed, the structure of the Republican National Committee, because I used to cover it. Okay, Republican National Committee, unlike the Democratic National Committee, is very small. There are, I believe, or again, unless they've changed all the rules, and if I have, what I'm about to say for the next couple of minutes is going to be totally, you know, like uh, uh, out of date, and I will apologize tomorrow. But I believe there are 168 Republican committeemen, three from each state, and then another 18 who hold various kind of pro-tem offices. Three per state, okay? Uh, classically they were hacks they were all hacks and they were somehow they were kind of like the people who rose in the ranks of the state party because they would you know like be the ones to lick the envelopes or they would you know they would have uh they would be the ones to get there early and stay late and kind of organize the phone banks and stuff like that and they really wanted to have these positions and they would get the they 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 would run for committeemen and they would get there were three committeemen and usually one state chairman and two committeemen and then these other eighteen so there are very few I believe the Democratic National Committee is like two thousand people something like that the Republican National Committee very small and it's always hacks it has always been hacks it's not people who are driven who have been driven ideologically to get involved because they want to change the country these are the kinds of people who get involved in politics because they like politics they like to go to meetings and they like to you know they like to have lawn signs and they what they're mostly concerned about are very petty details of electoral life where are lawn signs you know what hotel am i going to stay at when i go to the rnc winter meeting and how you know can i get on the committee that gets to choose where we're going to have the next uh, national convention because that's really a lot of fun. You get to tour and go to different places and get wined and dined by various cities and that kind of thing. Very low rent, not impressive people. I covered the RNC race in 1994, in which Haley Barber became the chairman of the Republican National Committee over Spence Abraham. Uh, it was in, uh, I think it was in St. Louis. And let me tell you, it was it was not. It, I know that was a long time ago, but it was not an impressive group of people. But they were hacks of a different order. They were hacks of the old Republican hack type, kind of bushies, and you know they were very mainstream, and they didn't like you know you know they 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 liked Christians because then they themselves went to church, but all this all these you know Christian activists that gave them the willies, and and then they were coming for them, and they wanted to take their jobs away, and they didn't want it, and all of that. They were not, you know, driven uh, night and day by you know talk radio and Fox and One America. Okay, now flash forward to today almost 30 years later, and it is precisely, it's still hacks, but they're now ideological hacks. And they're now, they're now mostly, they've mostly now come out of that sort of extremist wing that was so scared the hacks of the previous era. You know, there are a bunch of like, you know, uh, 
there, you know, there are a bunch of people for whom liberal, probably Rush Limbaugh was too left wing by the time that he was done. And so and they also want to get lawn signs and direct mail contracts and do this and that and go pick where the next RNC meeting is going to be. Uh, but they also want to be nasty and disgusting and mean and 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 not only and and not have precisely oppose the idea that a party is a big tent. Uh, they are part of that coalition whose whose view was most astonishingly uh, represented by Jim Dement, the former senator from South Carolina and the former head of the Heritage Foundation, who said, "I'd rather have thirty good Republicans in the Senate than sixty rhinos." They want a smaller party. They want a more ideologically cohesive party. They don't care. They don't care. All they want is to drive people out. And that is the story here. The story here is not only did they want to drive, do they want to drive out Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and punish them and make sure that people like them aren't considered fit for the Republican Party, which is, of course, suicidal, because the whole point of a party is to have as many people in it as possible. It has no other purpose. Its purpose is to accrete people so that they will vote for you and the people that you want them to vote for. You don't want fewer of them. You want more of them. There's no there's no party that wants fewer people in it except the current Republican Party, which is bananas. So they are looking to actually alienate and drive out people from the party that 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 in in you know in a complete sort of contradiction to what it means to be a party, and. You know why they want to say that uh, January 6th is, a, is an expression of legitimate discourse? Because they believe it. Because they think the election was stolen. Because they think that that rally on, on January 6th was good. It was good. It was an expression of, of legitimate political discourse to stand there and say that, um, that you know, Venezuelan communists stole our voting machines and the guy, the MyPillow guy is a better representative of of the of the um, of the right thinking of America than Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, that is who they are. And the the issue now is, does it matter? Because they are a bunch of hacks, and the RNC has no power. It has no power. It has no authority. It couldn't stop Trump. It could, can't stop anybody. It has no control over anything. They couldn't even run a platform in 2020. All they can do is pick the next place that the convention is. And so in some fundamental sense, all of this is terrible and it says something absolutely awful and they are impotent, pointless, stupid, lousy, fourth-rate, junky hacks who deserve to go and you know fall into a sewer. And that's, so, that's who they are. I, I very much want to believe that the overwhelming majority of Republicans uh, hate all this and are horrified by it. But I have to ask, why is Liz Cheney pouring uh, polling so poorly? Yeah, among Republicans, if that's the case. Well, we don't well, know where she's going in Wyoming. I haven't seen Wyoming numbers that suggest she's. It was a straw poll <laughs> that was doomed. That was well, straw polls don't count, though. Straw well, polls, right? And polls. also, you know, the national political mood is certainly against her. I don't. It doesn't matter for her. She's Wyoming's at-large representative. That's what's most important from her perspective. Um, well, we but, don't you know, know. There's CBS News polling around January 6th from in January, um, which shows exactly what everybody thinks of uh, what happened in January. But the Republican numbers are interesting among those who strongly approve or somewhat approve of the actions of those who forced their way into the Capitol. That's the wording of the question. 
you get 6% of Republicans who strongly approve and 18% who somewhat approve. 76% of Republicans somewhat or strongly disapprove of the violence that occurred on that day. To fail to make note of that in this resolution is a display of profound myopia, a politically, in, a politically incentivized motivated reasoning, and just an absolute failure to represent the general Republican voting base. This is not a representative well, institution. And not to go off brand for the podcast, but there's a potentially optimistic future scenario, short term future scenario here. And it was kind of uh, uh, embraced. We got a glimpse of it also this weekend when Mike Pence gave a speech at a Federalist Society conference in Florida where he said, uh, you know, the president, President Trump is wrong to say that, you know, overturning uh, president. Well, he said, I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. He said, President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. So you have Pence here kind of quite, not getting as much coverage as the RNC, you know, censure of of Cheney and Kinziger, but you have him laying very quietly uh, a little escape hatch for the Republicans who he was, you know, he was the vice president. It's not like he's an RNC hack. You have an you have a path out. And if you also look at the polling numbers on what people care about right now, look, gas is at its highest price in, in decades. Um, inflation isn't going anywhere. People are actually able to galvanize and organize around a lot of what the Biden administration has been doing wrong. We, there, there is a way forward for Republicans to get away from this nonsense. But they're you know, at the local level, there are going to be these Trumpies who who want to continue and it going. But I've been watching Pence has been really interesting. He's he's not yet figured out quite how to thread the needle. And I don't know what his aspirations are for a few years from now. But that was a pretty bold statement. That was a good thing that he said that. Well, the second it half was, of that quote is the most important, frankly, because it's the most logically compelling from a Republican's perspective is that Kamala Harris can't do this either. Kamala Harris can't decertify the election results in 2024. That's not Congress's role. It's not her role. And it wasn't my role. And that's the sort of thing that if you have even the the semblance of logic and the capacity to reason yourself into a consistent position, that should be compelling enough. Here's my feeling. Pence said exactly the same thing on January 6th. I mean, he said he said it on January 6th. So he's saying it again. So it's now highlighted. I'm I'm distressed for a different reason. Um, because again, I, I think it's disgusting and I'm I'm sickened by the RNC, but I've been sickened by the RNC for years. I was sickened by the RNC when when Sean Spicer was its spokesman and when Reince Priebus started to kowtow to Trump. I'm sickened by it. It's a sickening, corrupted institution. But as I say, it was always unimpressive. And it was a dumping ground for the most part. It was a dumping ground, except there were a couple of people who really ran it brilliantly, including Haley Barber, who really did run it brilliantly as a political organization, but mostly it's a dumping ground. Okay. Um, what was I about to say that I just got myself totally off track? This is this is very annoying. Pence, like you're upset Pence. for a different reason than no, we're I'm upset, upset for a different reason. Okay. We can't get away from Trump. Biden is president. Biden's now been president for 13 months. We can't get away from Trump. Trump is still a bigger figure on the national landscape than Biden. Just think about that for a minute. This is madness. This is, we're never going to get away from him. All, all that has to happen is for a little bit of news about nothing to come out. And then we have five days of Trump and it's the, the left wants to go crazy over because they because they they can't get enough of hating him. And the right wants it because they're bored and they don't like the other Republicans that there are to talk about. We're never getting away from this guy. 
Well, part I mean, of that though I, I is don't because understand they, how anyone is gonna is gonna be present is gonna be the nominee other than him because uh, he will just blot out the sun. I, I mean, you know, if he if he actually gets to the point where there is a serious race in 2024, there's no obscuring this. You know. Um, Okay, I'm sorry, Christine. I no, I was just going to say that the, the actually this seems counterintuitive because oh my word, the news cycles it would create. I would find them fun as an observer, but they should just let Biden off the leash. I mean, part of why he's not able to still eclipse Trump even after being in a year in office is they keep him so tightly controlled. But when he wanders off message, he's kind of hilarious and angry and lashing out. And you know, he he'd probably keep going to town on Trump. He's done it in little spots here and there. You know, he did it during Terry McAuliffe's rally. Didn't help Terry McAuliffe, but he is capable of, of becoming that figure, but they're not letting him. So I wonder if they ever will let him off the leash. Um, he's clearly proven not to be the Mr. Uniter he promised anyway. So that promise has already been broken many times over. So why not? Well, he's capable of making news. I just don't know if it's the news they want. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, the look, the the if you don't want Trump back in the presidency, uh, the thing that you have to hope for is that is that his obsessive focus on on a past event uh, is is going to wear badly over time. But the simple fact of the matter is that the media will not allow it to wear badly in the sense that people will go, oh, do I have to do I really have to cover this? It's like it's not that it's it's like one of those. We keep making these analogies. It's like every single time somebody has a has a confrontation with their divorced ex and they're a friend of yours and they're like, you won't believe what he just did. You know, it's like seven years later that there, there's no lessening in the rage from the first you know, conversation about what the ex did till now. And that's, you know, that that's my you know, I, I just don't know where it gets to the point. It's like, oh, he called me again. And it's like. Uh, that's whatever i just hung up on him you know <laughs> till you get to that point uh we are gonna have real real problems here in my view and uh it's the kind of problem you might have if you don't have uh express vpn why do i say that because express vpn is about making sure that unwanted things don't happen to you and the internet and that's like a very important thing Going online with an ExpressVPN is like leaving your kids with the nearest stranger while using the bathroom. Most of the time, it's probably fine, but you never truly know who you're trusting. Why would you ever risk it? That's why you need to be using ExpressVPN every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, basically in any networks that's not your own. Your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, passwords, financial details, you name it. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your data. Hackers can make some serious cash selling personal information on the dark web, but ExpressVPN has made it easier than ever to keep your information safe. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're instantly protected. And ExpressVPN works on all your devices like laptops, phones, and tablets so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary. So two final pieces of news. Uh, one's a piece of news, one's a photo. The piece of news, Noah, involves your home state. What is it? Our governor announced 
will we'll be announcing today after <clears throat> we record this that it is his intention five weeks from now in mid-March to rescind the mask mandates in schools. Um, certainly if this does go forward and a lot of things can happen in five weeks, but if it does go forward and I have, a, I believe it will because our governor has been telegraphing and retailing this notion that we need to get back to normal sooner rather than later. And that involves rescinding um, all mitigation protocols, including masking for children. Um, if this does go forward, a lot of schools won't do it. Newark, Camden, um, Morristown, you know, half a dozen places that are darker blue than us. A lot, much of, much of the state, I think. Um, but in places like where I live, where the only reminder that there is a pandemic still going on is when I have to mask my children when they go to school. That, that is it. That is the only reminder. Um, my place, you know, that's gone tomorrow instantly. And there's quite a few, uh, I would, you know, for lack of a better word, Trumpier aspects of the state, Trumpier areas of the state, darker, redder areas of the state that will get rid of this immediately. Um, there will be a lot of resistance in the New York Times profile of this move. There's a lot of resistance. Pandemic is still here. Kids don't have uh, enough vaccines. There's still plenty of unvaccinated people. The hospital capacity, everybody's tired, et cetera, so forth, so on. So there will be a, a rear guard action around this. And I don't know if it's going to succeed. I don't think it will. I think that the groundwork has been laid to the extent that the governor is serious about doing this. And he, he's apparently trying to raise his national profile for, you know, who knows, um, maybe he'll come to his senses uh, but anyway, this is part of what he thinks is going to have to be the brand moving forward for the Democratic Party. And they are right. And he's right. And God bless him if they manage to make this this work, because it's the direction in which this country needs to go. And as the job numbers proved on Friday is going with or without the Democratic Party. I mean, five weeks is a long time. That's the other thing about this, like five weeks from now. Gee, that's really big. Every table that we see, everything that we see says Omicron is gone in the middle of next week. The Omicron surge will be over in the middle of next week. Um, so uh, that's a weird thing that he's then giving him, you know, buying like another four weeks after that in order to, in order to, I don't know what, draw fire, uh, give himself an out. It's, it's hard to know. Um, I, mean, I don't know why it helps him to say we're going to do it in five weeks time because he's just allowing the, his rivals, the, the people who are opposed to it, to <coughs> gather strength. That's not but who he's talking know. to. He's talking to the people who are psychologically committed to this, and they need time to wrap their heads around right. a, a, a psychologically more healthy relationship with a functional society. They need the space to okay. emotionally get there. Okay, and now can we talk about the Terry McAuliffe 2022 moment this weekend? There it is. Classroom. Lovely ACA classroom rooms. in Georgia. Kids, <laughs> little kids, 30 of them, all arrayed, very picturesquely behind Stacey Abrams. Every single one of the child, every single one of the children in a mask. Stacey Abrams with a big old grin on her face, unmasked. What the hell was she thinking? They tweeted out this picture, her own campaign tweeted out this picture because this is how they, they live they, this, they have never followed their own rules john they actually didn't think about it what they thought is 
I'm vaccinated. I'm an adult. I'm around kids who may be too young or not fully vaccinated. So they keep their masks on and I'm going to talk because I can't be heard with a mask on. They actually don't care about these kids experiences. She doesn't have children of her own. She doesn't spend a lot of time in these schools. She was there for a photo op. The most um, interesting thing to me was how badly they handled the fallout. All she had to do was say she had two options. She could go full Jared Polis and be like, you know what? This is a reminder that actually the rules don't make sense anymore. We're at a different point in the pandemic. We need to start easing these restrictions. She can't do that. She's a Democrat. She's beholden to teachers union voters. She, she's that's that's her, her group. But or she could have just simply said, you know what? I should have had a mask on. I should follow the rules like everybody else. I'm sorry. But instead, they had this series of insane. They delete the tweets, a series of insane, highly defensive things trying to, you know, calling Trump supporters boot, you know, bootlickers and just insanity. She only Total took insanity. the mask off in order to make herself heard and understood. Yeah, that, because uh, children detail, don't need to be heard. Right. That's a yeah. detail in the Atlanta Journal Constitution yes. that you can't gloss over. She yeah. quote her campaign said that she wore a mask to the event and only removed it so she could be heard by students watching remotely. And for a handful of photos on the condition that everyone around her was wearing a face face coverings, they wanted this to happen they explicitly said that this is going to happen this is how it needs to happen and then they shot out this photo completely unaware that there would be a backlash around this because in their circles there is no backlash around this this is what this is a democratic status symbol how many pictures have we seen of democratic politicians and school governors and we're opening we're opening the schools and they're unmasked and all the children are masked and miserable this is like part and parcel of how you uh, how you behave as a Democratic politician with uh, national ambitions. How many tens of millions of dollars is Brian Kemp going to spend making sure that everyone in Georgia remembers that photograph on Election Day, which is, of course, eight months from now? That will be the most famous photo in American political but history. But if you think that the public is generally OK with masking, and there's a lot of polling data around that, that a majority, maybe not everybody, the majority is okay with masking. They're certainly okay with masking children in schools because there's a pandemic on and they're not vaccinated and all this. If you think that, if you believe that, you don't think there are any political consequences for behaving that way because everybody's I'm on not, your team. Okay. All you got to do is send a photo out to everybody in Georgia, have commercials, and it just says the following. Stacy, where was your mask? That's it. Or Where just unmask mask? our kids. Like she's sitting yeah. there with, a, yeah. with no mask. Unmask no. our kids. <laughs> yeah. No. So where was your mask? Why, why is a four-year-old masked and you and you get to breathe free? I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's not complicated. It's the biggest political blunder I've seen since the McAuliffe quote. And what's interesting is it's the same political blunder as the McAuliffe quote about how parents shouldn't, you know, have any role in educating their children. It's exactly the same blunder, only it's much more stark, (laughs) you know? And I mean, there's just no getting away from it. There's no, it wasn't Photoshop. It was nothing. It was her photo. And yeah, there, it's interesting to go through the whole question of how they got to doing something so unbelievably stupid. Um, and that's interesting. And, you know, there'll be there could be interesting essays written about it. Just yesterday, Representative Elise Slotkin did the exact same thing. You know, happy selfie in front of a, you know, a school meeting where literally everybody is masked up. Adults. It's a weekly are, occurrence. Among it's, Democrats. It's, con- it's constant. Yeah. They don't believe they have to play by these rules. 
I don't well, know that the, they don't believe it. It's not that they don't believe it. It is that there is some kind of dissociative identity disorder issue here, which is, look, if we have a f- campaign photo op, we got to be able to see the candidate's face. See? we got to be able to see her face. Otherwise, no one's going to, you know, people don't really know who Alyssa Slotkin is, so we got to see her face. So she'll just take off her mask. We'll take a picture. We'll see her face. Oh, so but she the, can see her face. But the dam is really breaking for uh, the, the Democrats here because it's not just about masking in schools. And I, although these are all, you know, kind of currently very hot issues there, you know, there are all these legal cases in in Virginia with Yunkin. So the, the same people, though, who were defending Stacey Abrams, I might add, were, were going, you go, girl, to this woman who in a in a grocery store, which did not have a mask mandate, yelled at Yunkin when he came for a, you know, for a visit to a grocery store and he wasn't wearing a mask. So they, they love that woman, but they will not criticize Stacey. But look, in cities across the country, there are bigger problems now in people's minds. We've been saying this in my own city of D.C. We've had more people uh, in the last year be murdered die of homicide than have died in the entire pandemic. Like, I mean, these are numbers now that people are after two years going, what are we doing here? Like, why do, why is the mayor spending all of her time? Also another hypocritical democratic elected official who only wears a mask when she feels like it. Why are we spending all this time, all this money on all this COVID stuff? And you cannot solve the daily carjackings and homicides in the city. Like people are aware of this, even democratic voters who otherwise have given benefit of the doubt to these leaders. Remember, there are two forms of uh, voter behavior, particularly in a midterm. One is enthusiasm and people getting very excited to go vote, to vote, to to express, uh, you know, a kind of larger view than than just how they're, you know, going to vote for their local representative or the member of their party. And the other is the opposite, which is ah, the hell with it. Um, everything Democrats are doing. Everything Democrats are doing has the effect of making a somewhat marginal Democratic voter to a mildly serious Democratic voter to a certainly any independent Democratic voter say, what the hell's the point? Look at the way they behave. Like, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go get my, you know, I'm, I'm going to go get my nails done or I'm you know, going to go to a movie or I'm, I'm not going to stand online. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to get a, like an absentee ballot. The hell with it. What do I what do I want to vote for them for? That is death. That is death in the midterm. Lack of enthusiasm on the part of your party's base and the kind of and or not just the base, but also the kind of uh, uh, incidental voter that you need to like basically save you from disaster. You know, again, there's time. There's always time. There's time. But I mean, the the mindset is so powerful here that you are just you are seeing the ringing out of any enthusiasm on the part of people who will want to prevent Republicans from, you know, taking the majorities in the House and Senate or, you know, winning governorships or whatever. They're just, you know, in related just news, tired of their own people, I think. In related news, this just comes across the wire. Stacey Abrams gubernatorial campaign seeks a social media platform director to manage the day-to-day posting of the campaign social media accounts. I bet they do. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're kidding from Daybook, which is oh a uh, you know job God. opportunity platform for people in the political world. We're going to go so you can all apply for that job. Go to Monster. <laughs> look, look up Stacey Abrams, recovered. 
apply for the job. Let us know how your interview goes. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs> <laughs>